Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. We spend most of our time on this podcast talking about domestic religious liberty topics, which generally involve conflicts over how we should live together in a pluralistic society. But in many other parts of the world, religious persecution is very different. It's it's repressive, it's often severe and violent. And today we want to talk with some of our colleagues at the USCCB about religious freedom issues in other parts of the world. Joining us today, we have Megan Goodwin and Lucas Koch. Megan is Associate Director of Government Relations, and Lucas is Director of the Office of International Justice and Peace. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Aaron and Mary, for having us. Oh, before we really get started, uh, I just I wonder if you could both say a little bit about your role at the USCCB, uh, just so our listeners have a better sense of, of where you're coming from. So first, let's start off with, you know, kind of by way of introduction. What is your uh, role in the Office of International Justice and Peace? And then maybe you can both say kind of how you work together on international justice and peace issues. Uh, sure, Aaron. Thanks. I'll go ahead and uh, jump in uh, on that. Uh, so, Uh, The um, Committee on International Justice and Peace um, has a a purview to help um, the church uh, understand and unpack Catholic social teaching uh, as it pertains to uh, wider issues uh, around the globe, uh, policy development, advocacy, education, outreach, um, ecclesiastical solidarity, being able to walk in, in, in close bonds with uh, brother bishops and other conferences around the world. Uh, oftentimes, you know, bishops, uh, naturally, they are uh, occupied with the duties uh, directly before them in their, their diocese, but they, they do want to come together as an American conference, uh, as a U.S. conference, to um, work on these issues uh, in, in unanimity uh, with a, a unified voice. And that's what me and uh, my staff do uh, uh, with uh, this committee. Okay. So real quick, Lucas, now my understanding is that other countries have bishops' conferences as well, but they're, they can be quite different, right? Not usually as well-staffed as ours or have as many resources. I mean, could you talk a little bit about that, What, how that? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's right, uh, Mary. You're absolutely right. Yes, there are bishop conferences uh, uh, around uh, the world, and we certainly work uh, in tandem with them where uh, where we can. Uh, you're exactly right. Some um, aren't as developed uh, or as uh, staffed uh, like the USCCB. Um, you know, e- even our team, we always feel like we're just scratching the surface on, yeah. on some days. Um, so we certainly will work with them uh, where we can, uh, however we, we can. Um, you know, we don't necessarily have to have a, a direct counterpart, you know, uh, or a, a directly corresponding uh, committee. Mm-hmm. But those bishops' conferences, their, their issues and the things they're contending with, uh, certainly as it relates to these wider issues of human dignity, common good, and, and as that relates to international policy, um, they do have things to th- say and, and, um, and important um points of uh, reflection for the the bishops in this committee to uh, consider. So we'll work with them uh, however we can and and wherever we can, and we often do. What does that mean for how you collaborate with government relations, just to to give people a sense? And I say this not to belabor the point, but 
like when I've given talks at parishes, one of the first things everybody starts asking me is just kind of how the USCCB even runs. I don't think people often quite realize. Yeah. So I think that sometimes the, the staff doesn't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a great question. I'll, I'll turn it over to uh, my colleague Megan. Um, Hi, so, so I work in the Office of Government Relations. We work very closely uh, with International Justice and Peace with the committee. Um, so the, the IJP committee, uh, International Justice and Peace Committee, after they determine their policy priorities, um, in, you know, under the leadership of Archbishop Brolio and the bishops who sit on the committee and under the policy uh, leadership of, of Lucas and his team, um, they identify the policy priorities and then that will translate into um, ideally a bill on the hill. Um, so what that might, I mean, it might come from us, we might use the information that, that we've gathered to recommend certain interventions, um, or it may already exist and, um, and IJP will decide that they want this bill to move forward. So my job is to, once the bill is on the hill, um, to help to shepherd it through the process. As you know, it can be very convoluted, um, particularly in um, the, the climate today, things can e very easily become polarized. Um, and so uh, my role really is to, in, oftentimes to educate members of Congress um, and, and policymakers about the issue um, and to encourage them to either sponsor it or help to advance it. Um, I help to facilitate meetings between um, the bishops from, from other bishops conferences in the areas in question with policymakers so that they can use that information to inform the way they develop policy. And at times even we will convene to congressional offices if they are on opposite sides of the political spectrum to help them come um, to some sort of conflict resolution, uh, you know, that just between their two offices and their interests in a way that doesn't really lean one way or the other for us, but will help the bill move forward. Um, so in a way, we're, we're sort of peacemakers in, the, in that sense, just bringing together people across the political spectrum uh, to come to an agreement for the common good. So, so, that's, so that's sort of my, my life, my, my half of it is, um, is to be on the Hill. So a lot of what I do, uh, a lot of what I'm working on right now are international religious liberty bills that are on the Hill and genocide relief bills, which are connected to that. I think, yeah, that's helpful because I think some people might just say, and, and I myself will often just say, Office of Government Relations, you're a lobbyist. But people may not quite really, like when you say that educating about bills, people may not realize that that's what, that's a big part of what a lobbyist is doing. It's not just, you know, trying to like be involved in like power politics, but you're, a lot of it's just education. Uh, so be grateful for what you do. Uh, and I want to get back later to your points about polarization and convening, kind of playing peacemaker. Um, I'm, I'm interested in that. Uh, but first, you know, to get to the topic that at hand is uh, international religious liberty, I know that you both could probably read off a litany of places uh, where believers, and not just Christians, I mean mm -hmm. believers of in, in di very di in many different faiths, face severe persecution. What are some of the key areas that we at the Bishops Conference are tracking? And, and I mean, I realize that at the global level, there are so many places where things are so bad, there's just no way that here at the conference we, can, we could be involved in every place. So, but what are some of the main areas where, that we are tracking that we're trying to get involved in? Yeah, that's a great uh, question, Aaron, and you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, we are living in uh, trying times uh, around the globe when it comes to issues of uh, you know, human um, 
rights and uh, issues of individual conscience and, and religious uh, freedom. And so, um, you know, it is a bit overwhelming in, in, in many respects. Um, you know, that, for example, uh, according to a Pew Research Center, 83% of the world right now lives amidst high restrictions on at least one religious minority group. Um, you know, so you can literally uh, almost point to uh, any place uh, on the globe and not see where there's some difficulties and challenges. Whether it's you know spanning the gamut from merely from just mere marginalization or uh, potential infringement on religious liberties, all the way to to, to genocide. And so uh, naturally, um, the committee is is most concerned where we're seeing. Uh, the most uh, uh, egregious um, crosses against uh, human conscience and, and religious freedom. And again, uh, there's uh, an array of them, but some that we're really looking at right now and, and, uh, and particularly focused on is in uh, Iraq and Syria. Um, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, as we know as ISIS, um, has continued its um, genocidal campaign against the Christians, uh, Yazidis, uh, the Shia Muslims, dis um, despite uh, losing territory. And the Assad regime and Iranian-backed uh, militias in Syria increase sectarian attacks against Sunni Muslims. So for um, just to kind of put that in perspective, there have been uh, three million Christians um, uh, who are estimated to have been uh, living in Iraq and in, in Syria in 2003. But today, 75 to 80 percent of them have been forced to abandon their homes because of uh, sectarian violence and the rise of the Islamic State. And of the 1.5 million Christians in Iraq in 2003, perhaps only 200,000 uh, remain, and many of them are internally uh, displaced. So it's, it's truly dire, and to um, you know, we could be living in a time where um, Christian faith, which has uh, such a deep uh, heritage going back to uh, the first century, is at risk of in extinction in, in, in some of these uh, areas. Briefly, um, but certainly by no means uh, less importantly, um, Nigeria is um, very high on the radar, if you will, right now. Um, more Christians were, were killed in, in northern Nigeria last year than the rest of the world combined according to the uh, head of a human rights organization um, so far this year in 2018, 6,000 innocent victims have been uh, maimed or, 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 or murdered. And that's a, a great uh, concern to us and, and wanting to uh, continue to engage there. And the other uh, that kind of comes to, to mind right now is um, the crisis going on uh, in uh, Burma and Bangladesh, where the Rohingya uh, people have been uh, uh, subject to uh, human rights uh, violations um, in their native home of, of uh, Burma. They're not considered uh, citizens, they're not allowed to vote, um, and since 2016 particularly they've been uh, pushed out um, and right now about 1.3 million uh, Rohingya are refugees um, uh, because of their ethnicity and because of their uh, Muslim religion. So uh, certainly religious persecution and religious freedom you know isn't just uh, you know germane to any particular religion. Uh, I think you know, uh, Christians are under a particular attack in many respects, but it does, it's, it's not uh, uh, solely uh, Christians, and we believe we want to protect the conscience and religious freedom of all people on the globe. I one time heard, I can't remember what, uh, I was at some event where one of the speakers thought that one of the reasons Christians 
may be persecuted more often, like in, in so many countries, is precisely because we've been so successful or in so many countries. And that's, I mean, because we're so widespread, it makes us more likely to, there, there are more possibilities for Christians to be persecuted. I mean, does that kind of make sense, do you think? Yeah, po- uh, possibly, you know, uh, but I think, you know, what we're seeing, though, is um, a relationship between as you see uh, re- regimes become more authoritarian, you see uh, religious freedoms uh, constrict. Um, you know, as, as, as poverty rises, you see these types of uh, similar uh, flare-ups where um, issues of uh, ethnicity and, and religion uh, are, are put, out, put out there as uh, presenting issues um, and are, are supposed causes of, of such conflicts. So, um, you know, it, it is, there is a complexity of, of reasons this is, uh, uh, this is occurring, and these, those are just a few of them. When you say, um, you said earlier, um, forced to, to, you were talking about the, the people in Iraq and Syria. Now, are you saying that they are actually physically being pushed out physically, or they themselves are out their danger for their lives are actually fleeing yeah. the country? No, they, they um, I mean, certainly they are, they do flee for their lives as, um, uh, war has 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 spread, um, but no, there have been uh, systematic uh, efforts by virtue of imposing uh, taxes um, on non-Muslims, um, on issues of um, also demanding people to um, to profess Islam or their brand of Islam. Um, yeah, at the at the threat of death, and so you know they they have been forcibly uh, displaced in, in many respects. So I wonder um, if you can say a little bit. Either of you can take this question just with these places, and we we can just focus maybe for the rest of our time thinking about Middle East, uh, Nigeria, and Burma. Um, those are the places you named. You know, what are some realistic goals for places like this? Uh, I mean, we can't expect. Every all these other countries to embrace, uh, you know, our kind of liberal democracy or that sort of thing. Like that's probably unrealistic goal. So what what is realistic in terms of what we can hope yeah. for? Well, and this is where I think uh, the, the church has uh, a great opportunity because we are uh, a people of hope. That's uh, whom our Lord calls us uh, uh, to be by virtue of uh, his sacrifice uh, for for us and, and for humanity. And so while, yes, um, real uh, uh, state-level changes in these areas are, are far off, uh, a lot of these are, are failed states, they're, they're kind of rogue regimes running in and out, and so those types of legal structures that we all uh, desire um, may very well, as you said, be uh, a ways off. But meanwhile, um, the church uh, can be uh, the hands and, and the feet of, of Christ um, and, and bringing his, his compassion. And, and they are. There's uh, great um, uh, NGOs, um, faith-based and non-faith-based alike, uh, many of them motivated by their faith to uh, reach out uh, in compassion. And they uh, are paradoxically in these very uh, stark camps and and humanitarian situations are, are bringing a face of hope you know not a not a you know a, a package of, of long-term development necessarily or governmental reform but they're uh, developing um, 
relationships and, and hope in those those communities that they uh, perhaps haven't known. And, and we, we see this when there's these extreme types of environments and situations, um, that's when the church can really shine. And, and they are, uh, albeit in, in very uh, fragile, modest ways right now. Lucas, so, you know, I'm mindful of the survivors, victims, the refugees, but I mean, really, I, I love that you mentioned hope, but are there, it, it sounds almost, ju- uh, you know, it's it's radical to think of it, but Christ was, you know, really called for things that were, seemed almost impossible to people. But can, is there, are there efforts to reach out to the, the regimes themselves and the people that are inflicting such um, horrible things upon the people of these countries? Sure. And that's where, you know, kind of going back to what Megan was saying in terms of what we get to, to do on the Hill, that the, the Catholic voice, I mean, again, it's, it's very, very uh, significant just by virtue of, of the breadth of the church uh, here in, in the U.S. And so not only do leaders on, on Capitol Hill want to hear from from the church, but also, again, we uh, are able to work in concert with um, bishop conferences around the world. And by no means do U.S. bishops intend or, or even uh, suggest, you know, coming in to try to mediate a situation. But again, we do, uh, they do seek to walk in solidarity with those local bishops and trying to I- encourage the good work uh, many uh, local bishop conferences are already doing. And um, they are engaging uh, their leaders in a, a myriad of, of ways. Again, uh, it gets very complex uh, very quickly, mm-hmm. but again, they uh, often have a place at, at the table. And um, knowing that we're, we're, we're with them and want to support them in any way, way we can uh, does help them uh, try to bring um, hope and uh, peace in these uh, very complex uh, situations. And, and, you know, they're you know, making strides in those uh, directions uh, by God's grace and mercy. You know, at the USCCB, we've been, I know we've been particularly concerned about the situation of Christians in the Middle East. I mean, that's been one of the, a big focus for us last year. We promoted a day of solidarity on the solemnity of Christ the King. Certainly, we should continue to pray, but I wonder if there are other actions we can take, and specifically, this may be a good chance to talk about some what kind of legislation we are promoting. How can, I think, you know, Catholics, you know, we hear these stories, and you want to, but you feel like, well, you're talking about another place altogether. I mean, how can I get involved? But there may be ways you can get involved, right? So, uh, Megan, can you tell us, you know, what legislatively are we kind of promoting and hoping for? Sure. Um, So one bill I'd like to call your attention to is H.R. 390. Um, That is the Iraq and Syria Genocide Relief and Accountability Act of 2017. Um, It was initially introduced uh, on the House side by Representative Chris Smith from New Jersey. Um, It has passed the House. It has passed out of the Senate committee. Um, and sort of it it should be soon going to the floor of the Senate. Um, And so that would be a great opportunity to get engaged. So just to speak a little bit about what this bill is and what it does. First of all, it uh, helps to facilitate U.S. aid to go towards ethnic and minority individuals and communities with greatest need in Iraq and Syria, which, uh, which would include religious minorities who are the victim of persecution. Um, It also empowers the State Department and USAID to provide financial and technical assistance 
to support entities with expertise in international criminal investigations to address crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, or war crimes in Iraq since January of 2014. So some of the ways they might do this, they could conduct criminal investigations, they could develop uh, indigenous investigative and judicial skills to adjudicate cases consistent with due process, Um, they could collect and preserve evidence. Um, And it also uh, asks the State Department to identify threats of persecution, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes against members of Iraqi or Syrian religious or ethnic groups that are minorities, with respect to whom ISIS has committed uh, crimes against them. It asks that they identify persecuted religious and ethnic minority groups in Iraq and Syria that are at risk for forced migration and, and gives them uh, asks for other data on, on these groups. So it's uh, it passed with broad bipartisan support on the House side. Um, so in terms of engagement, some of the ways that you could engage, um, you, know, you could call your member of Congress. You know, picking up picking up the phone and calling is uh, is always better than taking to social media, although you could do both. Um, but really what makes the biggest impact on members of Congress um, are personal stories. So one thing you could do is, is contact maybe your diocesan director and see whether there are communities of displaced, persecuted minorities in your own diocese. Um, and, and if you find out where they are, you know, see if you could facilitate a, a meeting between them um, and your, your representative or your senators. And, and something like that could go, could go very far and could really make the difference. And you in the, in, in the district and in the states um, are, have, have, quite frankly, you know, everyone thinks that people here in D.C. have um, all of the authority, but, but quite frankly, it's, it's the people back in the districts and back in the states that um, I think have significant um, and the majority of impact over, over their members. So um, definitely engage and don't underestimate uh, your own power uh, to do that. And especially um, right before an election, right? That's when you particularly might have some influence, right? <laughs> well, and, wait, and right now, though, is when they will be, I mean, they're in recess, right, the House. So you could, would be a great time to to possibly talk to them when they're back home. Is that correct? Um, sure. So it's always a good time to visit um, in district when they're home. Because this bill has already passed the House, we would really want to focus our efforts on um, on the U.S. Senate. And we, we, we have a we don't have a specific timeline for when it should go to the floor, but it should be going very soon. So when that happens, um, engaging with your with your U.S. senators from your state um, would be a, a, a good way to go. Um, now, the text is going to be slightly amended from the House version, so a reconciled version will eventually go back to the House. So, you know, it wouldn't hurt to uh, contact your your representative as well um, and just uh just reiterate your desire to see this move quickly or sometimes you know thanking them for their support of what i mean that's i think it it could really be hard to um you know to to be embattled in congress day in and day out and so thanking them for a good position is sometimes i think Mm -hmm. helpful that's right so i want to ask kind of follow up on you mentioned this being bipartisan you mentioned earlier, Megan, that um, issues with polarization, and, and I think that especially right now, um, we're all aware of how polarized politics are in our country. And so I wonder, like, I, I have had the sense that international religious freedom can sometimes bring people together, at least some events around town that I've gone to, that you get people from the left and the right together, because even if we may, like I kind of mentioned, our religious liberty issues here in the United States um, are can't, they're difficult 
because they have to do with kind of how we're going to live together in a pluralistic society. But most everybody can agree that religious minorities should not be maimed and killed. I mean, most of us can all, we can come together on that. Hopefully, if there's a, that's the sort of thing we can all come together on. I wonder, is that, do you see that generally that the work on this issue can be bipartisan? This can be something that people, and even within the church where there's polarization in the church, that, that Catholics can come together to be a voice on this issue? Um, absolutely. You know, I've been in meetings uh, with committees where you sit down and, and everyone around the table is from one party or the other. And that has actually not played out in, in terms of the Senate Foreign Relations and House Foreign Affairs committees. Um, oftentimes I'm sitting and you have the, the chairman and the ranking members lead foreign policy staffer sitting next to each other. They're friends um, and they're both interested in getting the information. Um, you know, actually with H.R. 390, they're, you know, in the process of resolving this, I can say, uh, House Republican leadership was very helpful, but also eventually um, the Democratic ranking member was also helpful on the Senate side to to help to dislodge the bill. Um, and so it is it is nice to see that when the rubber hits the road and when you know sort of when it comes down to the final hour, you do see both sides um, investing in making something like this move. So that is, uh, and I think in terms of Catholics. Um, you know, but in their back home in their parishes um, and in their schools and their dioceses. I mean, I, I do think that um, I, I was at an event last night. Uh, Senator Rubio was speaking at Georgetown, and he was talking about how it, 10 years ago he would have been trying to convince people to get involved in politics. And he says, but now everybody talks about politics all the time, and it's even hard to get away from that. And I think part of that could be a bearing back. Yes. Yeah, I, I thought it was just me because I was in D.C., but apparently apparently it is happening everywhere. Um, and so I, I do think there would be a temptation as our politics become more polarized for that to play out, you know, at the grassroots levels, with, you know, with, with Catholics, you know, not wanting to not wanting to go to the same parishes even, or not wanting to send their kids to the same school because of polar, political polarization and political disagreements. You know, and, and so that's something that that we as Catholics can start to combat. You know, these bond, the disintegration of the bonds of community. I think are a big reason why this has started in the first place. And and our churches and our communities are places where we can start to rebuild those bonds on an individual basis. And certainly, um, you know, in terms of, I think one thing everybody can agree on um, would be to come together in support of people internationally, people who are um, who are being murdered, people who are uh, the victims of genocide, um, and people who are starving because as a side effect of this um, these authoritarian regimes. This is something that that's still uh, up to you know the the highest levels of government people can reach agreement on. So it might be a good place to start in terms of coming together. If politics is going to be an essential part of the conversation for every American, this is a political issue that people can come together on. Megan, I would just uh, underscore um, much of what you, you, you said there that uh, um, to, to your point, Aaron, that while we do live in a politically contentious environment, a particularly politically contentious environment right now that we our country hasn't seen in quite some time there still remains I, th I think a uh, some unanimity around preservation of issues of conscience and uh, the, the the general value of, of pluralism that in some form or fashion we ought to be able to live out foundations of, of conscience which um, can often point to issues of uh, religious uh, freedom and, and religious liberty. And um, certainly in a liberal democracy, in the classical sense, we should be able to enjoy that. And that helps 
a society flourish and, and, and uh, help us have reasons uh, to support the, the common good um, and human dignity, et cetera, for, for our communities. So in some sense, that's what we are, we are hoping to see around the world, not by some notion of quote-unquote exporting U.S. democracy, but rather preserving the dignity of the human conscience that is really at a bedrock of, of any culture, uh, whatever uh, that society may, uh, may inherently uh, come from ethnically, religiously. Um, having that freedom of conscience uh, allows a, a culture and a society to, to flourish uh, ultimately. So I think there is some common ground still to, to be had there. But uh, again, we have, to, we have to see it. Well, I want to just to kind of close out, to bring us to a close, although I'm, I, I, it really it occurs to me that this is such a, I feel like this conversation is really just kind of has introduced some issues. And mm-hmm. so we're definitely going to have to do this again because, right. and, and I think we knew that coming into this, this is such a huge issue. I mean, you could really do, you know, you could have more extensive conversations just about one particular place, you know, what's happening in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. I think that's one place that a lot of people may just not really know about because everybody we're not everybody but many people know about Middle East there are certain places that we we hear about more often and Nigeria doesn't seem to be one that we've heard quite as much about at least the average you know Catholics not hearing so much about that so we'll definitely have to do this again but kind of to start to close us out I want to ask you something a little bit more that's kind of more personal in a way you know you learn about these, I mean, you're talking about genocide, like, you know, doing work on gen- relief, genocide relief is the name of the, the bill you mm-hmm. talked about. You're talking about getting in, learning, being immersed in these sorts of, I mean, these are horrific things that happen to Christians, to, to Muslims in Burma. That I mean, these are like horrible things. So you see, I mean, just how pervasive evil can be in the world. And then I think you add in the midst of that, I mean, we work for the U.S. bishops and we can't ignore the crisis in the church right now, the sex abuse scandals. I mean, all of this kind of, you know, it can be overwhelming, can be demoralizing. And um, and I think others, even though people who, you know, don't work for the bishops, but still, still can feel like you watch the news, things just seem like they're falling apart, you know, and people can feel overwhelmed. And so just I mean, can you give a sense for yourself, like how, you know, how do you stay focused on, on Jesus Christ? What, you know, who called you to do this kind of work in the first place? You know, what, what kind of helps you stay connected to, to your reason for doing this in the first place? You know, I mean, I think it's important to stay close to the sacraments. You know, I know if I were being honest, it was it was harder for me to go to daily mass after the allegations broke than it was before. Um, and I really had to challenge myself to go and encounter the Eucharist and, and really receive that as as a gift from the Catholic Church and, and to understand that the church is the body of Christ. Um, the church is the bride of Christ. Um, and that's greater than any single person who's a member of the church. Um, so staying close to the sacraments, um, you know, in the Sacrament of Reconciliation, uh, trying to, to make my way to adoration, um, and then intentionally seeking out community with other Catholics whom I admire and respect, um, and just be having honest conversations about sort of our feelings and our reactions and everything to the crisis as it, um, as it continues to evolve um, has brought me a lot of comfort in, you know, just uh, because it can be, I think, a, a very isolating time you know, feeling isolated from each other, from 
the church even um, as we're trying to figure out what actually happened and what's going on. Um, and so I think seeking out bonds of community um, on the basis of our Catholic faith uh, it can be a very uh, healing part of the process as we as we go through this. <clears throat> That's great, Megan. I, I similarly have had similar thoughts. You know, I, I, uh, we spoke a little while ago about hope that uh, ultimately we are a, a people of hope and you know if you just pick up the paper we don't really pick up the paper anymore you, you, you click on the latest headline of, of the day and it's uh, bad going to worse and and there are good things going out on out there but let's face it they don't grab headlines um, you know, like one thing I just wanted to point to uh, briefly here that you know in that vein did not receive a lot of press um, the State Department had a, a ministerial uh, gathering to uh, advance religious uh, freedom um, this is their first ever effort to, to do so, convening foreign ministers, international organizations, religious leaders, civil society representatives to identify concrete ways to combat religious persecution, discrimination, and ensure a greater religious uh, freedom for, for all. And that was, that was positive and that, you know, generated a, some action steps that they're committed to, you know, working on. And so the U.S. is uh, continuing to raise, I think, the, this issue. We just uh, are finishing the UN General Assembly. Uh, the world is is watching what's going on uh, in in Burma, uh, in Nigeria, in in Pakistan, in Russia, in China, and we can go on and on. You know there is hope, and for me, I think uh, it's always recognizing that my faith and and politics. Um, really can be a part of the same thing. I know as uh, Americans, sometimes we have a funny relationship uh, between faith and, and, and politics. But I do this work uh, because it's, it's an outgrowth of my relationship with Christ. His, his calling uh, to care for the least of these, to, uh, to advance the, the um, appropriate place of the human conscience is is the the fruit i believe of of you know my prayer life and what the lord has kind of formed and, and called me to you know we mentioned earlier some opportunities coming up like i mean certainly to support uh, hr 390 um, but again like on this personal level of, of how we can engage with our faith uh, one example uh, i'll give a great shout out to a group uh, we work with called the Aid to the Church in Need, churchinneed.org. Um, little plug for them. Um, they're doing a, a night of witness, Vespers for today's Christian Martyrs here in Washington, D.C., November uh, 28th from 6.30 p.m. to uh, 8 p.m. I think there's information on, on their website. It's going to be at the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. To And I enjoy participating in that kind of night of witness um, because again it informs my prayers and at very first I want to uh, have an empathy I ask Lord you know affect my heart uh, with the, the plight of these people I don't know I don't know where they live I don't know their their language um, but they're your children and I want to have your heart uh, for them and allow that to then inform our our action whether it's reaching out to you know uh, maybe it's some refugees in our, our community uh, or you know, uh, writing a letter to our, our member of Congress on something like HR 390, and so you know, similarly, uh, yeah, I mean, what's going on uh, in, in the church right now around the um, sex abuse scandals have been sad and and uh, egregious. But let's face it, it's not the first time the the church has run into to struggle. You know, as long as the church is composed of sinners, uh, which I'm among. And heaven's sakes, you know, the Apostle Paul called himself chief among, you know, we will run into these things. Doesn't excuse them, doesn't diminish them, 
um, and I'm, I'm grateful for uh, the leadership that you know the church is trying to bring to to this issue. But that what that does, Aaron uh, and uh, Mary, it, it connects us and and binds us to the cross um, because uh, and it's through suffering we uh, and often like through the encounter with the sacraments we're drawn closer into uh, in, into unity with our Lord. And so very dare say oddly or certainly paradoxically, it's through these challenges and these failings and these sins that can bring us closer to Christ, not uh, drive us away necessarily. Wow. Well, I, let me just say that was very encouraging for me because it is hard. Um, there, it's, it's challenging to be working right now, I think, for the church. Sure. And so that was very encouraging to me. And one thing that it reminds me of is um, you know, uh, someone once asked, I think it was Mr. Rogers of all people, you know, what, you know, who spoke to children, you know, like, well, what do you, what advice do you give when, when there are overwhelmingly evil things going on, it seems in the world. And he said, look for the helpers. And so mm-hmm. you two have both helped me with your witness today. And there are certain, certain bishops and priests and people of faith that when I hear the things that they're doing, you know, praying and fasting and offering up. Uh, reparations, you know, like that really encourages me. So, yeah. uh, you know, thank you for helping me today. Hey, you're yes. welcome. Thank you so much. I think this has, been, this has been a good, I think, introductory conversation. So we'll definitely have to have you have you again. Thank, thank you so much for joining for us. us. Thank you. This is Aaron Matthew Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.